News, a stream of consciousness news podcast with Stephen Jackson and Brandon R. Reynolds. Quick note about today. Yeah. Well, we have a guest, so let's not fight. Oh, sure. Yeah, no. Okay. We're going to try and get along to the best of our ability. Okay. Uh, and since you set it up, let's get right into it. We have a guest today, longtime friend and part-time colleague, once upon a time, Joe Eskenazi. Uh, used to work together, he and I, at SF Weekly for a number of years. Uh, he's now at Mission Local. And, um, and he's on to talk today about a case that's roiling San Francisco, a murder case that he and Mission Local broke about the murder of Bob Lee, who's a tech personage uh, who had been stabbed to death. Yep, and, and it should be noticed that it's not just San Francisco. It's roiling. This thing has gone nearly global, man. Everybody's really talking about a lot of roiling. Joe, hi, hi there. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, Br Brandon was my editor at, at SF Weekly uh, in a career milestone. Brandon was the first editor I was older than. <laughs> That's right, and he would never listen. I couldn't control him. I could only uh, yeah. contain him. So we're recording on a Friday, and it's moving sort of fast, and uh, and consequently that means the the opportunity for misinformation and certainly for spin is very high. So yeah, Joe, let's talk about the case as it stands. Sure, I can give you the story so far, is that in the very wee hours of April 4th, Bob Lee himself makes a frantic 911 call and says he's been stabbed. And police do arrive within six minutes, which is pretty fast, but he is already unconscious and will not regain consciousness. Stabbed to death in the 300 block of Maine in San Francisco, which is not a place most people are walking around at 2.30 in the morning. Bob Lee, it turns out, is very well-known and, uh, and well-loved in the tech community. Founded Cash App. He worked for Square. He's 43 years old, which I guess makes you a guru in the tech community. Um, so someone who is, it was very hard to find people with bad things to say, and certainly not following his tragic death. So everybody is very upset, but very quickly, the heartbreak pivots to uh, accusatory tones about how this is tied into the state of San Francisco. And that state of in San Francisco, that street crime is out of control and violent crime is out of control. And, you know, and and this is this is where things are. And it stays that way for quite some time, even though with even cursory analysis, that that is very uh, questionable. Uh, first of all, Lee was stabbed. Uh, most thieves have guns. Most thieves would have stolen that cell phone. So, uh Right away, my police sources were looking at this as a targeted attack. They clearly had their eyes on the suspect very quickly, put their ducks in a line, and Thursday morning had a raid and arrested him at his Emeryville Live Work condo complex. And it turns out that the alleged killer is also a tech executive, a man named Nima Momeni, who had an IT company in Emeryville. So the irony here is that a tech executive is killed and tech executives say this is the case that marks San Francisco's degradation and the alleged killer was a tech ex executive. So that's that's where we are now. And and a number of details just dropped today, uh, if you guys want to go over with that. Yeah, uh, let's get into that um, motion to detain. Sure. Um, the motion to detain lays things out um, pretty, pretty boldly. It, it describes Nina Momeni as a calculating premeditated murderer. And the allegation is that he was upset over some manner of a relationship between Bob Lee and Nina Momeni's younger sister. It's not described what it is, but a witness told the police that they had been in 
what seems to be a fairly heated discussion in which uh, Momeni is asking if his sister was doing drugs or anything uh, untoward, and Lee is assuring him that everything is all right. And then the killing took place in the wee hours of April 4th, but on April 3rd, they uh, end up at Ms. Momeni's apartment in Millennium Tower, which is a star-crossed luxury complex in San Francisco that also was in the news internationally because it was poorly built and is sinking and tilting. And anyhow, for whatever reason, video footage has the two men going down the elevator, getting into a BMW convertible, driving off. At some point, they stop in the deserted section of downtown. Video footage shows men, while you cannot see their faces, they are wearing the same outfits as Lee and Momeni before. And the one who was wearing the Momeni outfit lunges towards Lee, who then staggers off. Uh, The Momeni-looking figure pauses at an area where a four-inch kitchen knife was later discovered and then drives off at, quote, high speed in the BMW. So that's what was in the motion to detain. They don't want to let him go. They claim that he's a premeditated murderer. Also, there are text messages between Ms. Momeni and Lee in which she says, I'm sorry, my brother came down so hard on you, you know, et cetera. So that establishes that Momeni was angry with Lee. Mm. So that's what's in it. And as you can see, this isn't about tech and this isn't about San Francisco. It's about something else and something else that people have argued about and fought about since caveman days. Yep. Yeah, that's actually something that San Francisco Police Chief Bill Scott talked about in a press conference with Mayor London Breed and the DA, Brooke Jenkins. This is more about human nature and human behavior than it is about our city. You, you take this out of San Francisco, they, they knew each other. You put it in another city. Now, I'm not going to name any other city because I don't want to do that to any other city, but just put it in any other city. I don't believe it would have changed the circumstances one bit. Facts show and research shows that most people who commit homicides know the people that they kill. The research shows that. So you know, I, I do understand, you know, how people see and view things. I see it. I read it. I live here just like, you know, a lot of you all. But this has nothing to do with San Francisco. This has to do with human nature. And you broke the story, right, yesterday when it came out. You were the first one to put it up. And then it got picked up by just about everybody, New York Times, Washington Post, a lot of the cable news, did not see Mission Local, your outlet, um, necessarily uh, credited for for breaking that. But um, how did you get to it first? And to be clear, breaking the story of the apprehension of the suspect, correct? Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we were the first to post that this man is the suspect and this man was arrested. And we also have details that that are now proven correct. Uh, without telling you too much, just just well sourced, nothing illegal, just just knew the right people and trusted these people and was certain that that you know that that this was firsthand stuff and happened in real time. I mean, if you want to look at it another way, sometimes there's a benefit to being old and having long-standing relationship. <laughs> well, sure, and I mean, I think that's kind of one of the critiques of journalism around Los Angeles and San Francisco and sort of California generally is like, you know, when a a reporter parachutes in from somewhere else, they don't necessarily have those connections. And even the ones that do live here maybe have only been there for a couple of years. um, And so they just don't have the the depth of experience. Joe, how long have you been reporting in the Bay Area? Uh, If you want to count my college years, uh, it would be since 1994. Wow. At the 
at the Daily Californian in the Berkeley. Daily California, mm-hmm. Berkeley. We had another Mission Local writer here on the show who also broke a story that swept the nation. Well. Yeah, Will Jarrett, um, yeah. Who, who wrote about the killer robots. <laughs> and it, yeah, and I think it's that also, again, pays testament to the importance of hyper-local journalism too, right? And when you pair it with someone who's been in the game as long as yourself with a very laser-focused beat of a city like San Francisco and doing it all super nimbly on these digital publications, the result is the ability to break stories quicker than other large institutions, right? If you're trying to make the case that Mission Local should uh, exist and thrive, then then, then we agree. (laughs) MissionLocal.org and donate money. Uh, and I and I thought I, I was very pleased with Will's story, which I thought was a clean scoop. It was not salacious at all, though the opportunity is there. Yeah. Because even though the term killer robot, you know, people think like that's not right. That's like clickbait. No, this is a debate about robots that kill people. Yep. And, and <laughs> yeah, totally. And so what has been the reaction so far? What's disturbing to me as a journalist is that even though we were anticipating this would be a crime committed by someone with whom Lee was familiar, I can't say that I foresaw it would be a fellow tech executive. That is cinematic. So with that said, it is disappointing how many people just don't seem to care about what the statistics say about crime in San Francisco. And you don't have to say everything in San Francisco is all right, because it's not. San Francisco has a lot of overt misery that makes people uneasy. So I can understand why people would feel uneasy because there are tents on the street and there are people who are acting uh, irrationally. San Francisco also has a very high property crime rate. Your stuff will get stolen. Your car will get broken into. That happens. But San Francisco does not have a very high violent crime rate. The homicide level is low. The violent crime rate is low for a city of this size and historically. So I've told people this before. Is San Francisco safe? That is a subjective question. Do you feel safe? What are, you, what are your parameters of safety? You know, I have three kids. I don't let them ride around bicycles without helmets, but people do. You know, that's, that's a question of safety, right? But we can't say San Francisco is less safe than it was. And we can't say that San Francisco is less safe than Miami or cities in Texas or, you know, other places like this. So it's, it's two different things. San Francisco isn't unsafe, but everyone has their own comfort level. And some people probably should not live in a city. Uh, they probably should live somewhere else because of their willingness to accept or not accept a certain level of danger that comes with living in a city. Violent crime historically is l- down pretty low. Uh, if you zoom out, like, what is it, like four or five decades? I think it was in the I mean, 80s. Not even four 90s. or five decades. I mean, just, just, just recently. But then on top of that, people will say, well, I don't believe the statistics. Crime is underreported. Property crime is underreported. That's for sure. I can attest to that personally. But I don't think violent crime is much underreported. If large groups of homeless people get into a fight, they're not going to go running to the cops. Violent crime is probably underreported in marginalized communities where there is fear of the police or, or they feel the police don't care about them. But violent crime, is, crime in San Francisco is not underreported when the victim is a um, well-off white person uh, with assets to lose. So I don't mean to be flip about that, but you know, if if these are the people who are concerned, uh, that level of violent crime is is you know is recorded. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, Mr. Lee was sadly the twelfth homicide victim in San Francisco this year, and you know that's not a lot historically, but I wouldn't explain that to the families of those twelve people. Yeah. But in this case, also, it's the only one you know about. 
it's the only one that got stories. And the fact that it it did just turn into this politicized shit show really reminds you of how um, the lack of empathy that that people sort of seem to find when discussing things online or when there's a really easy spot to sink their culture war teeth into. I, I that that, that always yeah. gets to me. You know what I mean? It's, it's like, man, it's still a person. And there's something that always just gets my goat when the circus that erupted around this and things like that and similar occasions happen. I don't know. Uh, very clearly, the narrative that this death is somehow tied into uh, an ongoing devolution of San Francisco, it doesn't fit in with the actual statistics and it doesn't fit in with the particulars of this crime. So it, it's really like a double loser. But people... I mean, essentially, the, re- the the reaction I've gotten from the tech barons and masters of the universe who were tub thumping this was, well, I was wrong, but actually I was right. And there are some crazy justifications such as, well, what does it say about San Francisco that this man felt he could get away with stabbing someone right in the middle of the city like that? Hmm. Uh, they keep moving the goalposts to justify I mean, I'm worried about people having lower back injuries because they're moving the goalposts. And, you know... Um, <laughs> It's a bit much, you know, it's disrespectful and crass. Uh, yeah. We need to look at this particular crime. And it also doesn't work from the big picture. San Francisco's got problems. Don't get me wrong. I write about it. That's what I write about much more often than things working. But, you know, there's a very different scenario of uh, there's a lot of human misery that's visible and a lot of property crime. And it makes me feel uneasy to uh, I'm in grave danger because this is basically like living in Fallujah. Yeah. And and if it's a lot of unhoused people or it's a lot of broken windows, those are super visible things. Right. And so it's easy to sort of conflate those elements of the city with like some kind of larger trend of. And and the problem is, is that too often the coverage, everything is related to everything else. Uh, A story of mine that Brandon edited when I was uh, at SF Weekly, uh, there was a instance of two or maybe three times people flipped over smart cars in San Francisco. You remember this that one, Brandon? Early day. Yeah, this was early days of smart cars. People were, they, it was the pitchforks were out for the little smart cars. People thought yeah, this so, is emblematic of the tech people are taking over with their tiny, mm-hmm. economically sized vehicles. Let's flip them. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> uh, so Brandon and I looked into it and I wrote about it. And like, not every San Francisco story has to be the San Francisco story. Like national correspondents came in and were trying to figure out like what's going on in San Francisco that they're flipping smart cars. But it turned out that like if you, you know, just a little bit of rudimentary Googling, you find people had flipped smart cars up in uh, Canada and it happened enough that there was a term for it called smart flipping. And it turns out that if you're drunk and kind of stupid and you've got a few friends, a smart car is relatively easy to flip. And in San Francisco also, you have hills, which, you know, if you stand on one side, makes it even easier to flip. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't necessarily have to do with the ethos of the city, right? So in this case, you know, San Francisco, if something unusual uh, or attention getting happens in San Francisco, it suddenly becomes, you know, uh, a what's it all about type situation, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. wither San Francisco. Yeah, well, in San Francisco being emblematic of, you know, this is the, the culmination of one political and social belief system that has mm-hmm. been allowed to spin out unchecked for decades and decades. And so now everything that happens, it's like, well, you see, this proves yeah. that socialism was a bad idea or whatever. Like it becomes yeah, I, this I saw much a serious story, a serious story early last year uh, that predicted the Democrats would be swept in the midterms because San Francisco recalled three members of its board of education. 
Now, at the time, it was looking pretty dire that the Democrats would get swept in the midterms, but that's not because of a low turnout off-season election in which San Franciscans uh, vote on the Board of, uh, of Education. But that's the mindset that you have to think like, you know, uh, welcome back to planet Earth. Yeah. Uh, San Francisco, yeah. you know, it's a great city. I'm born here. I reside here. But like, you know, I, I don't think that we are the emblematic of, of more than we're emblematic of. Right. You know, San Francisco becomes the stand in Democrat run cities and this and that. And, yeah. you know, the strange behavior of our Board of Education could be used to uh, malign the Democratic Party, capital D, uh, nationwide. So that's out of hand. That's that's not the role of a city. And that doesn't correspond with reality. I like the New York Times and I like the writers that wrote the story. I think they're great. But like they included that windows are falling out of skyscrapers here because of the windstorms. And this isn't a story about like, you know, Bob Lee's murder and other, you know, unsettling things. And certainly that lends to a feeling that, you know, everything's coming apart at the seams. But but when you take a step back, like windows falling out of skyscrapers is not related to uh, whatever happened <laughs> downtown at 235 in the morning on April 4. Well, and I think one of the funny things about watching your reporting over the years, and I think it happened when we were working together at SF Weekly, and it certainly feels like it's accelerated since, you know, I guess since the political divide has grown wider post-2016 and it, that, you know, and since you've been at, at Mission Local doing this kind of local reporting, there's always a, there's this, there's this give and take where you'll report on something that's happening on the ground that is this local story, which is the responsibility of a local uh, writer, editor, columnist. And here's the thing, here's what's going on. And in the comment sections, people are always taking it to this like meta level. So, you know, you know, they're always asking these bigger questions. And then you'll, sometimes I'll see you come into the comments or sometimes you'll just ignore it altogether. But it's sort of like, that's not really what we're talking about. We're not talking about these bigger issues. You're, you're, you're zooming past the thing that is actually going on to try and attach this, you know, this larger political meeting or whatever. And so there's this, there's this weird blindness to it or, or, or this reality distortion field when it comes to San Francisco, kind of like what's happening in, you know, in Florida now or in Austin or in Portland or, you know, DC, like these places where, you come into it with some idea of what's going on, even if you don't have any reality. And for the local reporter, you kind of have this sort of exasperated patience uh, uh, where you're, where I see you go, well, now let me explain that this is not what we're talking about. It's it should probably thing. be in the comment section less. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I tend to give people a little bit too much of the back of the hand because, you know, I mean, especially on this uh, story about Bob Lee, uh, it ended up on Drudge, and that means that you get like large quantities of commenters coming over and talking about libtards and and, yeah. and feces and needles and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and you know, for 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 despising San Francisco, people certainly spend a lot of time fixating on it, mm -hmm. which certainly feeds the ego of San Franciscans. Because like you know, I mean, like San Francisco is a city the same size as Columbus, and uh, I I don't recall much existential angst over Columbus. Yeah, um, it's 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 enough. a city it's a city that's personified a lot in the news too. It goes past just being emblematic or you know it, it becomes a character like in itself right and so people use that and we see it in headlines all the time like brandon and i did a whole like a half episode about the when the they opened the dog cafe in the mission and and, and we just watched sort of the media on the right just like totally jump on it just because it was a fancy food for dogs 
restaurant in San Francisco. And that just like sort of word soup for them just like made their heads explode, right? It becomes irresistible because it's also such an easy thing to put in a headline and then immediately have all of this sort of charged thinking around it. I was also wondering in your reporting, I feel like maybe the answer is we don't know yet, but what more do you know about the suspect? I mean, I've I've heard that he was, you know, tech consultant. I saw a piece on the news where they uh, were, were walked around his uh, co-working or live workspace and all of that. Well, but here's here's a fun story, Stephen. His next door neighbor at that co-working at that live workplace is Sam Singer. Hmm. This will be a name that sticks out in Brandon's memory because I wrote a story about him too. Sam Singer is the Bay Area's best known disaster crisis consultant. He's the oh, guy yeah. you call if you have like a horrible problem. You know, yeah. like uh, if your zoo, uh, if a tiger jumps out and kills somebody oh. or if, you know, if your product kills somebody or if I don't know, you're arrested and charged with murder. Yep. Uh, so like that's incredible. Is there anything else that you have learned as of today about the suspect? I mean, I, I was focused more on the on the uh, the perimeter of the case rather than the heart and looking at, you know, who was getting arrested. And I haven't really done a bio of, of Mr. Momeni other than to to notice that, yes, he does have a sister who's married to a plastic surgeon and they live at Millennium Tower and he is a self-professed tech executive and he worked out of this fairly upscale building there in Emeryville, which is a um, up-and-coming suburb near Oakland and Berkeley where, you know, there's a lot of tech and and uh, and live-work stuff and it's, a, it's actually a really nice town. Other than that, you know, it's someone who was in Bob Lee's circle. So when yeah. I was talking about this with law enforcement folks, it's like, you know, I'm not surprised that the suspect is somebody who Bob Lee knew. I didn't expect it to be someone who was a fellow tech executive. And what they immediately told me back was, well, it's who you hang out with. Yeah. What did you think about the other coverage around um, around the whole case? The stuff that came out of San Francisco from the Chronicle, et cetera, but then also the the national level stuff from New York I think Times, the Chronicle, Washington Post. I think the Chronicle did better than many. Because the Chronicle never gave in to the to the um, blood and thunder talk of, uh, of of the tech barons, but at some point there was like, you know, you had some um, very twisty roads there when you talked about you know people talking about a rise in crime that uh, statistics don't show. It's very difficult for a daily paper to um, to straight out say like this narrative is bogus, but then you know they did a good job of writing other articles that more or less that was the premise. Uh, my worry is that when you write like eight articles about something or 10 articles, that people will choose the one that that, that best fits their worldview. Uh, but I think the Chronicle did better than most. You know, I think that um, by nature, whenever you talk about all the stuff that's got people nervous, you're kind of making a highlight reel of things that made people nervous. And therefore, uh, the portrayal, whether intentional or not, is that like, this is how it always is. So when you tie together, you know, all the things that have got people on edge, like, you know, young people uh, having uh, brawls at the Stonestown Mall uh, or an instance in which uh, a former fire commissioner was uh, nearly beaten to death by uh, angry homeless people. Uh, this murder case, windows falling out of uh, skyscrapers, you know, stuff like that. It becomes like a drumbeat of like uh, violence and chaos when, you know, if you look out your window in San Francisco now, like it doesn't look like war torn Ukraine. You know, mm, yeah. and even if you go to the worst parts of San Francisco, uh, it is worst on, worse on a continuum. The tenderloin was not good five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 or 20 or 25. The drugs were less lethal. 
but there were still, you know, lots of drug addicts and homeless people. So it's a spectrum. And that's not to say things are good, but, you know, if you need to have a little bit of historical literacy if you're going to start suddenly making uh, proscriptions. The problem is that that historical context can be read as, and I think is read as, you know, an endorsement of or an acceptance of like, well, this is just the way things are. And what are you going to do about it? And I think, you know, one of the misconceptions that that external media and certainly right leaning media has is that like every journalist in San Francisco is fine with the way things are right like that mm. that it's not critical of its own city when in fact a lot of the reporting is i mean a lot of it comes from local reporters figuring out what crime statistics are and that sort of thing and, and that reminds me of this piece that you wrote for sf weekly way back in 2009 called the worst run city in the u.s in which you and benjamin walks unpacked uh, a lot of the reason that that San Francisco was so dysfunctional and it came down to I mean you had some great examples in it and it came down to um, that there was a lot of government and there was no accountability and there were do-gooders and some of those do-gooders were voters who were like yeah we want libraries yeah we want you know protections for kids yeah we want muni and then the way that money would just be shuttled around so that it wasn't actually doing what it was supposed to do and there was never a mechanism by which people could be held accountable and therefore like removed for incompetence i mean it really was like bureaucracy 101 do you want to talk about that a little bit yeah i'm glad you brought that up i mean that article all of that is true and all that is still true the particulars have changed you know uh Certain departments are more responsible. Certain departments are less responsible. Certain things have been fixed, but like that overall description does work. If you have set-asides, that's what happens, right? If you have set-asides for voters where it's like people like libraries, people like parks, then those get funded and suddenly when you don't have money, you know, you, you're mandated to do it instead of thinking like, well, what are our priorities? You know, that's still true. And you still also have... Um, systems where accountability is, is, is elusive and, you know, it's hard to figure out who to blame. Uh, I I find myself more often these days, like, I think that there are people who could fix this and don't. There are people who could at least address this and don't. It is easier to, you know, carry on. Our forthcoming fiscal calamity might, in some ways, hasten better government. San Francisco is poorly governed because it can be. But if you run out of money, then you can't do it that way. That's an interesting approach to the problem of San Francisco, which is that it's always been a place people want to go to to spend tourism money. It's a place they want to go to to live. For a long time now, it's been a place that multi-billion dollar companies want to set up shop and, and you know add their employees to the tax base. So it has been very lucky. And on top of that, then you have you know, a, a political system that is more or less in lockstep for a long time. And as you point out in the story, and as we've all pointed out in other stories, like there's no Republicans here. I mean, you know, conservatism in San Francisco is maybe center left, if that. I mean, there might be people who have conservative views, but they, they wouldn't talk about that the same way they wouldn't talk about other things that will get them discredited in public life. And yeah. maybe if they were living elsewhere, they would be more overtly right wing. But that's not the way to get ahead here. Well, that argument always can come back to if there were more conservative thought in the government here, you wouldn't allow people to sleep on the streets. You wouldn't allow public drug use, the public defecation, the idea that the city would be run 
more cleanly and you just wouldn't have these problems that are so overt and that are really easy to point to. It's very easy to, you know, take a camera and find a broken in car window. And like, but I, those... again, I'm going to, I'm going to push back and say, that's, that's not really an ideological problem. You know, um, junkies in Omaha have houses because housing in Omaha is cheap. Mm. Right. <laughs> you know, that's not a liberal conservative issue. That's, that's land use, right? That's, that's, that's value of land, right? The slope is slipperier in San Francisco because of that most, if not many of the homeless people are either from here or have been here a good deal of time. But, you know, it really doesn't take much to slip into homelessness if you're coming in as as um, a marginally wealthy person, right? You know, right. And, and if you lose your job, you can be really in dire straits very quickly. Uh, as well, far the as same I'm is true in, in Los Angeles. I mean, a, a mm-hmm. similar problem is happening where people are losing their homes. I think also in Los Angeles, it's easier to stay out of view. Uh, Los Angeles is just a bigger place and, mm-hmm. you know, and, yeah, and, yeah. and there's less pedestrian traffic and it's easier to stay out of view. I mean, Los Angeles is vast. <laughs> San Francisco is not big. And so, you know, as there's more development in San Francisco, there are fewer, you know, vacant lots and back alleys and things. With that said, San Francisco, we do get inured to stuff. And I have three kids that I have on the street and, you know, and I have to keep an eye out on things. And I'm not really too often concerned for my kid's safety. It's just that like kids ask questions that you suddenly don't have an ask an answer for. Like, why is he doing that? And like, why can't we help him? Uh, you know, here in the Excelsior, there was a man who was probably homeless walking a couple big dogs. And my son, who was five at the time, invited him into the house. Kids are great. He didn't say, sure, I'll come in. He, he came up with an excuse. Like the kids, kids don't understand why this is allowed to happen. And at some level, I, you know, why is this allowed to happen? It gets complicated, but like, San Franciscans are able to uh, tune out an awful lot. Yeah. I mean, same, and it's the same with LA. Did that, I mean, really, it's kind of the same anywhere. Like, whatever your local problem is, it is something that you tune out. And, and then after many years of it, you can sort of look at it as an outsider and say, boy, that's, that's crazy that we look at things that way. So, you, yeah, I mean, this, you, no one could say things are going great in San Francisco, but like, you do need to do this with nuance in that like there is a difference between societal decay. There is a difference between property crime. There's a difference between violent crime. Yeah. And also then you get to the other element, which I think you guys both hit on of like, why are we suddenly up in arms about this violent crime? You know, do you know what County in California has the highest murder rate? I imagine maybe like uh, either in the Southeast or somewhere in the central Valley. You're close. It's Kern County. Bakersfield is the seat of Kern County. Bakersfield is, you know, it's not a small city. And Kern County has about a million people, but it has the highest murder rate. So, you know, this isn't a leafy green suburb, but it's not a city. So, you know, San Francisco's safety levels, which we talked about earlier, and how, you know, you can be relatively safe and still think that's not good enough. There may not be another place you can go <laughs> that's, that's automatically safer. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that anybody would trade the livability of Bakersfield for San Francisco. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 so it's, it's not super duper straightforward. And you, you know, we all have to determine like, what does right-wing governance look like? Like how much, is there a governing involved or is it just like triggering the libs at this point? I mean, are you going to really be helping these homeless people? Or are you just going to be tossing them in jail or pushing them, you know, into New Jersey like Giuliani did? Well, and I think thinking about it as GOP, as we envision the GOP now is, is maybe a non-issue. Like, I don't think we're going to have a question of abortion in California and particularly not in San Francisco. Those things are not going to show up, but it's more, you know, what people think of as somehow essentially conservative, which is an obsession with law and order and with, you know, 
values, let's say, maybe I'm, I'm giving this more credit than it's due, but let's assume that people read into that as like certain values that wouldn't let your neighbors sleep on the streets, that certainly wouldn't endorse, you know, public drug use and so on. Now, of course, that doesn't say much about the mental illness, which the right tends to ignore anyway. But I think one of the narratives that plays out in San Francisco is, at least from the governmental standpoint, the the toggling back and forth between a more quote, more and quote, less lenient governing system, right? So like you had the previous DA was Chesa Bowden, uh, you know, nationally, and I think probably internationally discussed as this progressive who was going to, you know, uh, he was not going to prosecute certain crimes that were misdemeanors and so on. And of course, then the conversation became, well, now you see how crime has gotten worse. He's replaced by Brooke Jenkins, who, you know, who sort of said, we're not going to put up with that. And I feel like isn't it, don't you think that historically, Joe, it's been that kind of oscillating back and forth between somebody who comes in and says more law and order, somebody who comes in and says, okay, now we need to be kinder and gentler. And, and it never necessarily seems like either side is, is really pushing things forward. And in part, that's because, again, as your story points out, it's like, no, the, the problems are so systemic. They're so big that, you know, just playing, swapping out this one player is not enough to make a difference. I mean, is that... I agree with you. And also, I think that, um, I mean, I've written a lot about Chesa Boudin and the, uh, and the recall. And I think people who talk to Chesa on a one-to-one basis uh, seem to really get it. But Chesa was not able to, to make his message to the masses. He made some political mistakes. And one of them is, um, and, and he admitted this, uh, you really do need to take people's feelings into account. So all the stuff I told you about statistics, that's all valid, but you can't use that to assuage people's feelings. And so he, he learned that a little too late. And also the nature of crimes changed during the pandemic. Uh, a lot more burglaries, which could make people feel really insecure, especially if you're like at home working from home. And uh, the neighborhoods where people were doing that changed and they were more upscale neighborhoods where people weren't accustomed to this sort of thing. As a reporter in San Francisco, right on the ground, Joe, how do you think this story could have been covered better by journalists both in San Francisco and nationally? I think that local places made an, a real effort to push back on the notion that violent crime is out of control and that you know things are getting worse and, and, and made a real effort uh, with the statistics. Sometimes you got convoluted stuff in there. <laughs> people are entitled to say, I feel unsafe. They're not entitled to say, I feel unsafe because violent crime is on the rise. At this point, it's incumbent to to show that. And separate and apart from that, you know, uh, there's a time for emotional arguments and a time for statistical arguments. And I would never try and console a victim of a crime by saying, statistically, this is very rare. <laughs> you know, like that's, mm-hmm. that's not how human beings work. But at the same time, you know, you're not supposed to formulate policy or like, you know, place your cops and you know, position A or position B because of how people feel. You do need to have some some layer of analytical thought. And uh, this is a difficult, difficult tightrope for area newspapers and radio stations and television stations to, to walk uh, because some very loud voices were saying some very loud things. So I, I would say that locally we did all right. You know, I, I took issue with the way some of it was done, but I'd say that internationally there was some really terrible stuff. Uh, I mean, like yeah. really bad. I mean, um, the Daily Mail uh, managed to inadvertently, or may- maybe they just don't care. They they said there had been 39 murders so far this year. There have been 12. They just threw a number out there. Hmm. 
Yeah. I mean, like 39 would have been on par for what you'd expect in like 1977. And BBC somehow said that San Francisco is one of the more dangerous and crime infested cities because they commingled the violent crime and the property crime. You know, again, I don't think property crime is cool and okay and like an urban tax, but like it's not the same thing. You know, it's it's frustrating and demeaning and maddening to have your your stuff stolen, to have your window busted, etc. It is not the same as having your life threatened or 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 have being violently robbed or being assaulted or being killed. Mm-hmm. You know, these are different things. And you know, this SFPD, I have plenty of issues with SFPD and what they prioritize. They don't seem to put a whole lot of effort into solving property crime. But credit where credit is due, they seem to have really sewed up this particular case. You know, people will continue to be concerned about those things, the homeless, the drugs, the property crime. And even though it's not your job with this story to address those things, those questions will still remain and that anxiety and whatever confusion will still remain. And I wonder if there is a way to to address that, to do something like the worst run city in the U.S., and say, you know, here are ways to really solve these problems. Here are solutions that are in play. You know, now that you have the attention of the world, essentially, is there an opportunity for you and for Mission Local to come out and say like, all right, these are the questions that you have that are behind these other questions. Let's address them now. I mean, is there any discussion of that? Like, well, you, you sort of got the spotlight. What do you do with it now? I think there's definitely room for that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And there are entities that do that in San Francisco. To their credit, the Chronicle has people doing, you know, solutions journalism. And the San Francisco public press has for a long time had people doing solutions journalism. And we do some of that as well. That's hard. You're getting into like hardcore policy. And then, you know, well, here's what they did in Salt Lake City and here's what they did in Houston. It's like, well, how is that going to fly in San Francisco? It's different. Land use gets into everything. And so as we discussed earlier with overt drug use, Land use gets into things that you wouldn't have intuitively thought it does. So like, you know, all these really courageous and high flying solutions for homelessness elsewhere would founder here because of the high cost of housing and high mm. cost of construction. And if there were easy ways to do this, it would be done. It's, it's difficult. It's just difficult, though that kind of journalism, I, I support it. It takes a lot of work to write something that people then don't read. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. It's true. Yeah, that work is going on. And unless it it scratches some itch or is sexy and salacious and sordid, then people assume that those conversations aren't happening. And in fact, it's like, well, you're just not reading the daily stuff. And the New York Times isn't coming in to address that stuff for a national audience in general, because that's just not their purview. It only happens when someone's murdered in the streets and then all of the accusations and the hand wringing and the, the navel gazing begins. Yeah. People say they want this type of journalism, but then people don't read it. It is frustrating. Well, because a lot of people don't really want that type of journalism. They just want to sling rocks in the culture war. They want to. I mean, they I, want you. They want you to essentially write a mirror. You know, they want you to reflect something back that they already think. And then when you challenge that, or you give them something that's not about that, then it's painful. It's uncomfortable mm-hmm. for them. It's like, well, this isn't the San Francisco that I came online expecting to find. And I want that one. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, you know, you're I, always going to be disappointed. all 10 of my minutes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. There's an investment of, of time and resources. And again, to go back to the idea of Mission Local and, you know, why it's important, why it's rare is that local journalism is the stuff that you know, allows the people who live in the city to figure out what's going on and to be able to make those decisions. And of course, all that research about how local journalism tends to keep uh, political corruption down, tends to keep unnecessary taxation down, 
all of those things. Politicians here really do react to publicity and scrutiny in a very exaggerated way. So there is something to it. I, I would welcome more competition, not less. <laughs> I think what you are getting at is as you're doing your day in and day out reporting, the stuff that doesn't go national or doesn't go international tends to be about these, the minutiae, you know, it's these things that are like the daily life of a city. And that stuff doesn't get big because it doesn't fit into some larger narrative or some perceived larger narrative. And then when it does, all people want to talk about is not that thing anyway, but rather these kind of big issues as we've been sort of going back to over and over again. And it can be a frustrating position for a reporter to be in when you're trying to say, here's this case of this person who's been murdered. Here are the details about it. They're not what we were thinking they were initially. And everyone's just like, but what about the shit and needles on the street? You know, and so yeah. there's that there's that kind of tension. There's that, that comeback right now, Brandon. You know, okay, so yeah. we completely bungled the framing of this particular killing, but are you, well, what about, you know, all this kind of stuff? It's like, that was always there. The right. point was that these are not really related. Nobody's become inured to murder. You know, you could say that people had become inured to murder in parts of the city they don't go among people that they don't look like, if you know what I'm getting at. But yeah. uh, in San Francisco, blessedly, we're, we're doing okay with violent crime right now. Uh, you're reminding me of a story about San Francisco. What does this mean? There is a maybe apocryphal tale of a vaudeville actor in the early days of San Francisco putting his hands in like kind of a akimbo gesture saying, what does this mean? and inadvertently uh, mimicking the uh, semaphore code for various kinds of boats coming into the harbor. So when he said, what does this mean? And stuck one arm up and one arm down, someone yelled, a three-masted schooner is arriving. You know, so that, that's a San Francisco story for you of, of your. Now, whether it's smart cars being flipped over or tech executives being stabbed, the question is always, what does it mean? So I, I take Brandon's comment there very, I think you hit the nail on the head. People are always trying to to distill things and elevate them into something that maybe doesn't work. It's it's a dodgy proposition, and we we did it a lot at SF Weekly and all weeklies. But I think we were responsible about it. You want to find someone who is typical of an ongoing trend, not elevate something that's an outlier or a one-off into something more than it is. All right, Joe Eskenazi with Mission Local known you for a long time. You're doing good work and for better or worse, you're on the international stage now. Uh, Joe, thanks for coming on. It's about time. Yeah, a real pleasure it. to have you. I appreciate it. Yeah, missionlocal.org. Please donate and keep us uh, working and I'll try to break more stories and uh, earn more appearances on this show. Great. And uh, and this show is called Journos and I'm Brandon R. Reynolds. And I am Stephen Jackson. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Journos is produced by me, Brandon Arvillings.